0: Up we're gonna wrap up anthropology here, hopefully in about 10 minutes or less. And then we're gonna jump into Hamartology, the doctrine of sin, which by the way, as we're getting started, that, that sheet is back there on the counter if you want that. It's back there right by where Paul is. Um, so the doctrine of man, we had several, if you have your notes from the last few weeks. We have several sociological implications. And the one big one that we talked about last week was, was ethnicity and race and how the doctrine of man plays into that. Um, but also when you're considering the doctrine of man, you have to understand that God, when he established this and when he, when he set this all up under the doctrine of man, he's established authority. And, and just think with me, what are the three main areas of authority that God has established? What would be the first one that he established in the garden? What's the first area of authority that he established in the garden? Mm, Man over the animals, I would go. But also, what what was established in the garden? Man and woman together. That's a what? It's a family. He established family, okay? So he established the authority of of family. Then, Then after that, God established government. Okay. God established government. That's, that's God's design. Um, second Peter or 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at, let's look at that. Um, so, so God establishes government. He, is, he, he cedes authority to man through through government. And then what's the third area of authority that that we have that God established? The church, the church, yeah, those are three, three areas where you have, you have man exercising authority over other men, okay? So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as the servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay? So, so God's telling us to be subject to human government. Um, what's the qualifier on that, being subject to human government? Is all human government to be blindly followed? No. No. What's the qualifier? Being? Well, if that's the case, then we would never have submitted to government. Not even our founding fathers were the religious men that we think they were. They were God-fearers, but they were not many. Most of them were not Bible-believing Christians, and and we got to be careful as Christians that we don't rewrite that history. There's a difference between, a, between being a God-fearer and a Bible-believing Christian. Um, most of them were deists who believed that there was a God. Um, so what's the qualifier then? And how, you know, because because there, is, there is corrupt government. As long as you have people in charge of other people and, and they can exercise power and influence and gain money from it, there's going to be corruption. So what's the qualifier? If it's doing good, if it's accomplishing good. That can become very subjective, though, can it? That can be very subjective. Like we could just say taxes are all bad, and never pay our taxes. Okay. As a discerning Christian, we have to have that discernment. And, and... Yeah, I believe there's there, it's, there, there's a discernment that's required on us to be discerning about the government that's over us. Yeah. Um. Say that again, Zach, because you you got it. You nailed it. Unless it directly opposes God's law. And government will do that. Sadly, that's one of the things that's happening in our own country. We're seeing our own government turning directly against God's law. Um, we're witnessing it in places like Canada. Where they are directly telling churches, you may not meet. And, but allowing you know various other forms of, of social interaction to happen. Okay? That's a good way to put that, Zach. That's a really good way to put that. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time there, but there's another sociological implication that that we need to consider under the doctrine of man, and it's this. Um, Culture. God made us unique. We talked about this last week under ethnicity. God made us unique, and even in the beginning in the book of Genesis, like starting in Genesis chapter 4, you start to see the, the beginning of culture. And and we have to remember this, and the reason I bring this up is, is that, that just like everything else, just like when it comes to our view of ethnicity, our view of government, and everything else, our view of culture got warped, and it gets warped because of the fall. And culture itself becomes warped, okay? Okay, for instance, who gave us creative ability? God did, right? And, and some, what are some of the ways that man expresses creative, creativeness? Art, okay? Has art been perverted by the fall? Is still art, though, a good thing? Okay, what about the arts? I mean, think about the creative ability of, I mean, just, just look at, like, somebody did this puppet stage. If you asked me to do that, that would not look anywhere near that. Okay. And there, we have to understand that, that God, in his wisdom, has given to us these things. And as mankind, we're, we're given those things to enjoy. And just because we have different tastes in it doesn't make one evil and one good. You see that all the time with music. Just because, how many of you grew up and your parents hated the music you listened to? How many of you hate the music your kids listen to? Okay. What makes that good and evil? Is it just your personal taste? I didn't ask the young guy over there because he doesn't know anything about music past Like, By the way, I want you to be awake in the morning service because I'm gonna make a reference to something from the 1980s and and you're gonna have to have your phone ready to use the Google machine. I know. But when it comes to arts and culture, when it comes to arts and culture, we have to understand that that, that we that all of that is damaged by the fall. Even the stuff that we think that was really good was damaged by the fall. And, and, And we have to just kind of view it that way. So to wrap up the study on man, man's created in God's image. He disobeyed God, and in doing so, he died spiritually, we die physically. We see under the doctrine of man that man cannot save himself. Early on in Genesis 3.15, God makes this beautiful promise that he's going to redeem mankind through the second Adam. And Christ comes. He's the last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15. He dies in our place. But the big problem we're dealing with, and the segue now to Hamartology, is we're dealing with sin. We're dealing with sin. We all, we all are dealing with sin. And in fact, when you consider your Bible, how much of your Bible doesn't take into account sin? Have you ever stopped to think about this? There's only four chapters in your Bible where you won't find sin, or dealing with sin. What are they? Think with me. Genesis 1 and 2. And... Revelation 21 and 22. Those are the only four chapters in your Bible that don't deal with sin, that don't deal with the effect of sin, that don't deal with, with, the, with, with the problem of sin, okay? Those are the only four chapters, because in Genesis chapter 3, what's introduced? And it's not wiped out until when? When? And really, and really, if you want to consider it this way, you could say because sin is being judged eternally, you, you might even argue against the last two chapters of Revelation. What's the world's understanding of man? How does, how does the world, and I, and I know that, that we just got done talking about anthropology, but how does the world view man? We're all good. Okay, that's one way the world views man. How else does the world view man? One of the big things that you'll see is that, that man is not inherently evil, but, but he is a product of his environment, okay? He's a product of his environment, and, and if we could just correct the environment, if we could just improve the environment, we would improve mankind. How's that been working for us? Does it work? Why? Why doesn't it work? We've got, we got a heart problem, okay? Okay? And, and you can't reform a heart problem. We're going to see that as we, as we go through this. I put on there, there's been a shift to moral relativism. What is moral relativism? It's what? And how so? And, and I'm not as evil as you are in certain areas, and you're not as bad as I am in certain areas. And so pretty much you and I are both pretty good people, right? Why do good things happen to bad people? Right. And why do bad things happen to good people? Exactly. And, and, and basically, what we have seen, and it's not just in our lifetime, it's been going on for a long time, it's been building to this, is, is this belief that truth and that morals are very flexible. Truth and morals are very flexible. I mean, how often have you been influenced and you have seen, and maybe you see it in your workplace, you see it, whatever, you will hear people say, You get to define your truth. Okay? You get to define your truth. Is that true? Do you get to define your truth? What's the problem? What's the problem with, with mankind getting to define his own truth? It's already been defined, Justin says. What else? We can't come up with truth. We can't come up with truth. We can't do it. And so, so when we start with this, this thought that we can come to our own truth and that that truth, and for me, is absolute, that, that becomes a problem. But that's the world that we live in. That's the world that we live in, and so much so, and what we're seeing is is, is now this shift in our own society where those who have espoused this now want to be the loudest voices in the room, right? They want to be the loudest voices in the room, and they want to be heard above all, and if you believe that there is a truth, that automatically makes you what? Intolerant. Intolerant. Have you noticed that the people who preach and espouse tolerance and intolerant behavior are intolerant of one group of people? Who are they intolerant of? Those who believe that there's an absolute truth. So one of the things that happens to us as we talk about the doctrine of sin is because we're surrounded by so much wickedness, Right? This evil that's, so, that, that's around us, it's so pervasive, it's, so, it, it's just in your face, we ourselves as believers need to study the doctrine of sin because we don't see the seriousness of sin in our own lives, because we're guilty of moral relativism, too. What do I mean by that? Because the world's so evil, and I just have a couple little pet sins, do I take my sins seriously? Because I compare it to the world around me. Compound that with the, with the prevailing society of view today and the prevailing wisdom of the world, and that is, is that is that you cannot discourage people. You have to only build them up. We live in the age of self-esteem. How does that work with the doctrine of sin? Does the doctrine of sin build you up? It better not. It better not. And we live in an age where, where you you don't discourage little Susie or little Johnny. You don't tell them that they're wrong, that they're disobeying. You just tell them there's a better way. My daughter is a junior at Capitol in education, and she works in education when she's not studying, and she works for a large daycare provider down in Granville. And and this is the philosophy that they have. We never tell kids no. She comes home really frazzled a lot. You wanna know why? This is the world that we live in. This is this is how we're this is how we're training our educators. This is how our educators are working. it comes to this point we don't we don't want to see our own selves as evil we don't want to even see our own selves as evil it's interesting that when we look at a bible definition of sin if i were to ask you in 20 words or less to define sin do you think you could do it and give it a whole rounded picture of it some of you are saying, oh yeah, I could do it in 20 words or less, and I'm saying try. Because there's so many words in the Scripture that deal with sin. Without even, without even looking at my list, what are some of the words that you read in your Bible that, 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 are, that are synonymous with sin? What are they? What are, come on, give me some. Not doing good. Not doing good. Unrighteous. Unrighteous. Evil. Immorality. You're just scratching the surface. Transgression. Transgression. Missing Missing the mark. Breaking the law. Being lawless. What else? Do all those words mean the same thing? Yes and no. Those words all, yes, under a general heading of sin... They mean sin, but they all give a different nuance to the idea of sin. Okay. Here's the thing: there's many different words. Sin is multidimensional, and it's it's clearly wrong, but it's clearly wrong in a big variety of forms. Okay, let's look at some of these words. I'm gonna need some help this morning. So somebody get your Bibles ready here. And I need Genesis chapter 20 and verse 6, um, and somebody look up Judges 20 verse 16 because that's going to help us with something. Romans three twenty three, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2, Romans 1 and verse 18, 2 Timothy 3 verse 13, uh, 1 John 3 verse 4, Romans 11, 31, John 3, 36, Um, Ephesians 4.18 and Romans chapter 2 and verse 23. Got them all? There's there's plenty of people in here. Y'all just pick the first one or the last one. I know how you work. Genesis 20 verse 6. Sin is is missing the mark. That's the first one I've given to you. And by the way, of those eight that I've given you, that's only eight. We could go a lot further. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 6 says what? This is Abimelech. And God said, I kept you. He said, I knew you were doing the right thing. This is when Abraham had, had presented his wife as his sister and Abimelech was going to take her. And, and God said, I kept you from what? Uh, yes, I, kept you from sinning. I kept you from sinning, okay? I had somebody look up Judges 20, verse 16. It has nothing to do with sin. Judges 20, verse 16. Go ahead, Dave. And not miss. The exact Hebrew word for sinning is used in those two places. Okay? Sinning is missing the mark. Okay? And we have to stop here. What's the mark that we're missing? Well, Romans 3.23 helps us to understand this. You have that one memorized, anybody? All have what? And what? Fall short of what? the glory of God, okay? What's the mark that we're called to hit? What's the mark that God expects everyone to hit? His glory, right? His perfection. Can we hit it? We can't even get on the target, man. We can't even get on the target. So so let's understand fundamentally sin is, is ultimately us missing the mark. But it's presented in a lot of other ways. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2. How is it presented there? they've rebelled. They've rebelled. You'll see that word, the Hebrew word, and I'm not going to even try and pronounce the Hebrew words because I'm terrible at it, but the Hebrew word there is also translated in other places in the, in the Old Testament as trespassing, as betraying, as rebelling, okay? One of the things that, that really is hard for us to, to come to grips with is, is that we're all rebels. We're all rebels, Especially when it comes to your little children, your sweet little babies. You know, they look so innocent, they look so cuddly, they look so, they're, they're little rebels. And they're not rebelling against you, they're rebelling against God. And, and, apart, and apart from heart change, we're, we're rebels. Okay, I want to kind of keep moving. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 uses a different word for us. The wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Okay, it's a word that we use a lot. It's a word that we see a lot. Let's define righteousness and unrighteousness. What is righteousness? Perfection. What else is righteousness? We could just put it simply: what? Doing right. Doing right. Okay, righteousness is doing right. I once had a guy tell me this with a straight face, old guy, 78 years old at the time when he told me this. He said, I always do the right thing at the right time in the right way. He was serious. You know what that is? That's a form of self-righteousness. And you know what that is in God's eyes? It's unrighteousness (laughs) because nobody always does the right thing at the right time in the right way. Okay? And in the verse that Justin read there in Romans chapter 1, what's waiting for those who are unrighteous? It's what's coming in the very beginning of the verse. The what of God? The The wrath of God. The wrath of God against all unrighteousness. Okay? That's important for us. To understand, because when we come to the point of Christ atoning for our sins on the cross, the Bible says that God's wrath has to be poured out against sin. So when Christ dies on the cross, he faces the full wrath of God that you and I all deserve. Okay. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13. Second Timothy 3:13. I know y'all had picked the the uh, first John one. Well, even people, will on from bad to worse, okay, deceiving and being deceived, going on from bad to worse. Did I give out Second Peter chapter three and verse seventeen? I'm not sure I did, but I'm in Second Peter, so I can do it. Second Peter chapter three verse seventeen says this: "You therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people." One of the aspects of sin is that there is this wandering, this straying, this drift, okay? And, and, and this, is, this is where it's, it's when people say, well, I'm not a sinner or I'm not a horrible person. I don't do these horrible things. Yet all of man, we have this tendency in us to drift and to stray. And it, it's, I mean, if you will, it's like the slow fade out, okay? That, that's, that's part of, of what sin is. Okay, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is lawlessness, okay? What is lawlessness? Don't say sin. (laughs) What is lawlessness? That would be law-breaking. This is without law. Lawless is without law. What is lawlessness then? Okay, it's to say that you reject God's law. It's to say that you reject God's law. Lawless, because, because here's the thing. Even in Romans chapter 1, one of the things that, that Paul prescribes and says about us is, is, that, is that we're born with an understanding that there's God. We're born with this, this innate knowledge, being made in God's image, that, that we're all creatures made in his image and that, that there is a God, and yet all of us reject his law, lawlessness, okay? Is the law good or bad? Without it it be chaos, okay? Do we tend, because of our stringent, independent American ways? How do we tend to view law sometimes? We've got lawmen sitting in the room. Some of you guys are afraid to answer. Zach, how do most people view the law? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was only going 80 in a 70. That's just a little thing, right? I mean, it's not, like, it's not like I extorted millions of dollars or anything like that. We see the law, we like to pick and choose and we like to, 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 like to decide what parts of the law we like. I mean, when it comes to somebody like trespassing on our property, we like the law, right? Because I need to take care of this person who's breaking the law. Now, if I trespass on your property, there's a reason why I had to do that, right? And, and and so we pick and choose, and, and in doing so, what what we're doing here is is ultimately where did law come from? Who where did law come from? Right? Okay, God gives man authority to make laws. Sometimes men make really dumb laws, okay? But but the authority comes from God and and in, what we do is when we say the law I'm above the law or the law doesn't apply to me what we're saying is is that is that we're going to reject this whole authority structure okay which then leads into the next one there Romans chapter 11 and I think I said verse 31 in John 336 let's look at John 336 somebody have John 336 Whoever does not obey the Son. Um, How many of you have children who are willfully disobedient? Why are your children willfully disobedient? Why are your children willfully disobedient? It's It's what children do. It's what parents do. It's what people do. We're willfully disobedient. That's, that's who we are. We're willfully disobedient. Okay. Does that excuse the behavior? No. Okay. This is an interesting one. Let's all turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see this one. This is, this is an interesting one. Ignorance. Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 17, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. When Paul is saying Gentiles there, what is he saying there? When He's he's using a a big word to to describe what group of people. Is it just non-Jews? What's he describing there when he says, don't walk as the Gentiles? Unbelievers. Don't don't live as unbelievers, okay? Don't walk as unbelievers. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the what? Ignorance that's in them, okay? There's a side of sin that is just ignorance, okay? It's ignorance. And then Romans chapter 2, verse 23 describes sin as breaking the law. So there's this discussion, and I'm trying to make these things really practical for us. There's this discussion when you come to the doctrine of sin is, is there, is there a core element to all of sin? Is, is there something that, that, that with, with all sin, whether it's, you know, I don't know, murder, or whether it's stealing, or whether it's lying, is there a core element to all these sins? Is there something to that? Dave's shaking his head yes. He says, yeah, there's a core element to that. Anybody else want to agree with that? That there's, there's, you could boil it down, and at its very <laughs> impure <laughs> sense, what is sin? Some people have said it's pride. And I think it goes even deeper than pride. Um, so we're going to answer that question in just a second. But, but I want us to look at sin from God's point of view, and I think this will help us to understand that question. Is, is there a core element to sin? Okay. When God looks at man and he sees sin, what is God seeing? That's basically what we're saying. What is sin from God's point of view? Okay? Ultimately, it begins this way. It's a violation of the relationship between creator and creation. Okay? It's it's first and foremost you got to see it that way. It's a violation of that relationship. Okay? As creator Who has all the rights to say and who gets to, if we want to just make it overly simple here, as creator, who gets to make all the rules? Creator does, not creation, right? Creator sets the terms, right? Okay. What are the terms that that God has said? Why does man exist? We talked about this under, under the doctrine of man, anthropology. Why does man exist? To glorify God. Okay, that's the great Sunday school catechism answer. To glorify God. What does that mean, that man exists to glorify God? To put self-second. Let's answer it this way. What did it look like in the garden before man sinned? What did glorifying God look like in the garden? Whether that was for minutes, hours, days, what did that look like? What did man do that glorified God before the fall? Because is the purpose of man in the garden before the fall the same as our purpose today? Yeah. Okay. What did it look like? Relationship. What else did it look like? Work. We're in his image. We bear his image. Okay. To serve God in his creation. I think that's Westminster, yeah. So, when you look at that, it, our purpose is to love God and to enjoy Him forever. That means God put us in creation to enjoy our highest good, which does involve serving Him. Mm-hmm. breaking the enjoyment of God, what happened in the garden between Genesis 2 and 3 in the heart of man? Rebellion. What else happened? What? Yeah, you, you were both onto something here. Man, <laughs> we, don't, we don't ever point it out usually when we're there at Genesis 3, man was seeking autonomy, was he not? Man was seeking autonomy. What was Satan's appeal to Eve in Genesis? You're going to be just like God. You can make your own decisions. You can make your own rules. You can have autonomy. Okay? Go to Romans chapter 1. Paul Paul kind of digs deep into this drills down on this. So, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay? That's understood, right? You understand what he's saying there, right? You start to get your wits about you as a person. You become aware of what's going on. You know that there's a God. Okay? Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Man seeking autonomy. Okay? Man seeking autonomy. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Who was the first one to seek autonomy? Lucifer, right? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 14. What's Lucifer's downfall? Isaiah chapter 14. Verse 12, how are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is is a prophetic piece of scripture. This is also a description of something that's already happened. This is Lucifer's rebellion. And what he was seeking was autonomy. He he sought autonomy. In Genesis chapter 3, just just to remind us, I keep referring to it, but let's look at it. In Genesis chapter 3, what is is man seeking? The serpent says to, to the woman... In verse four, you will not surely die, for God knows then when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and they ate, he ate. Our parents, (laughs) Adam and Eve, We're seeking autonomy. So here's a definition that we can work on for sin. Sin is a lack of conformity to the will of God in attitude and thought and action. The center of sin is autonomy, replacing God with self. That's really close to pride, though, is it not? (laughs) Replacing God with self. The center of sin is autonomy, replacing God with self. Pride, selfishness, and idolatry are closely closely associated with all forms of sin. Can you poke holes in that definition? Let me say it again. Sin is a lack of conformity to the will of God in attitude, thought, and action. Okay? And at the center of it is autonomy, replacing God with self. So let's understand because of the fall, because of our inherited fallen in nature, we all, even, even as believers, are still battling with sin. And that battle with sin at its very foundation, its very core is, is I want autonomy. I want to call the shots for me. I know what's best for me. Does that give us a good understanding of what sin is then? Yeah. Yeah. And I want us to think this way. It's easy to think about the world around us and to make sense of why it's doing that. But that should make sense for our own hearts. My own heart wants to rule in the place of God's authority. That's that's a battle that I I am dealing with when I'm dealing with sin. Okay? So, how does this relate to other Bible doctrines? Well, (laughs) It relates to all Bible doctrines. It relates. If we don't have a good understanding of sin, we're, we're not going to be able to understand a lot of, of, of what we're going to deal with now moving forward. Okay? Sin affects all of man's existence, so it affects anthropology. Because of sin, we need soteriology. We need salvation. Okay? If we didn't have sin, we wouldn't, need, we wouldn't need soteriology. It affects Christology. Without Christ's substitu- substitutionary death, without his work, there's no remedy for sin. Okay? And we could go on and on. Okay? It affects our understanding of the doctrine of the church as well. (laughs) We're a group of redeemed people who are saved from sin. We proclaim the forgiveness of sin, and we're all wrestling with sin. We're all wrestling with it. Okay? It's interesting. If we move down to the origin of sin, and we've talked about it a little bit, but, but I want to look at it from another passage of Scripture. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28 and, and the fall of Satan. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11. "'Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, "'Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre "'and say to him, thus says the Lord God, "'You were the signet of perfection, "'full of wisdom and perfect in beauty.'" Okay? "'You were in Eden, the garden of God. "'Every precious stone was your covering. "'Sardius, topaz, and diamond, "'barrel, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, "'emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold "'were your settings and your engravings. "'On the day that you were created, "'they were prepared.'" You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found with you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, a guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before the kings to feast their eyes on you. Okay? Again, there's a prophetic king of Tyre, but this is also talking about the fall of Lucifer. Okay? You take that and you compare that with the Genesis 3 account and the fall of man, and, and, and you will see three things that are just striking here. Three things that are just striking. One, both are created by God. right? And this description here of Satan is, is just amazing here, okay? I mean, try to even picture in your mind what that must look like. What, what what Lucifer must look like. Okay? This is a, this is a highly created, this is in, in the way it's described here, it's like this special creation here. When God creates Lucifer, he's, he's unique from all the other angels. Okay. So both are created. Secondly, that strikes me is both experience the presence of God. Both experience the presence of God. Put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes. You're in the garden, and God walks with you. I mean, can you think of anything cooler than that? You're talking to the Almighty One, the One who makes you. You experience God's presence. But then there's this third common thread here. In both cases, with Lucifer and with Adam and Eve, they're both unsatisfied with what they had. They're both unsatisfied with what they have. Okay? So, then we have to ask ourselves when it comes to the origin of sin. If God is truly sovereign, is God God the author of sin? Your head's ready to explode? If God is truly sovereign, if he's truly in control of all things, is he the author of sin? What is your What does your head say to that? He gave us free will. Us free will. Mm, yeah, but but he's sovereign overall, right? Somebody, look up James chapter one and verse thirteen. That'll help us. It's going to give us some proof text here to go- operate here a little bit. James chapter one and verse thirteen gonna help us get started with this. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted with God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted being named every But every man is tempted to be strongly of his own lust in types. Lust when it is conceived, bring forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bring forth death. Okay. So does God did God create sin then? What does that verse say? Is God the author of sin no, the of shadow is mm-hmm is God the author of sin church is God the author of sin so you're, you're know, saying you're using the like the you're using like the kind of the robot argument there yeah, I mean, if, if we're know, all robots, robots like, mm-hmm mm-hmm Okay, so when it comes to this idea of original sin, okay, we know from James chapter 1, God, God can't be the author of sin, okay? That, that, that totally flies in the face of God's holiness, correct? A holy God cannot create sin, okay? So then we have this, what Paul has said, we have, here we have man who has ability he has volition. He has will to make choices, right? Okay. Let me ask a further question that might muddy the waters just a little bit more. When, when Eve took of the fruit from the serpent, was God sitting in heaven surprised or was God sitting in heaven going, I wonder what she's going to do here? Be careful how you answer this, because if you believe that God is all-knowing, there's only one answer you can give. And what's the answer? God knew. Okay. God knew. Is it just that God put man down there and he knew that he was going to fail his great experiment? Every day he said everything was good. At the end of day six, he said it was very good. Yeah, there's no sin present until until Eve disobeys, right? God didn't create the sin. It's it's a it's a result of Eve's choice, right? Okay, it, it it's it's a consequence, right? Of we now we have this fall, so. Here we have, then in the garden, we have sin introduced. God's not the author of it. Eve rebels. She seeks autonomy the same way that that Satan sought autonomy. Yeah, Tammy. Okay, I'll grant you that. Lucifer sins first. I'm talking about here on earth in the garden. There's no sin present. Okay. But so, so you have Lucifer sinning in heaven, kicked out, right? You have sin now in the garden. And we're dealing now with, 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 a, with mankind that's tainted forever by sin. Okay? It's not a surprise to God. We can only say this. With complete confidence. This is one statement that I can make with complete confidence. An all knowing and all wise God chose to use sin to display his glory. Some of you are looking at me like, what? Is that a bad statement? No. That wasn't even that wasn't the plan though. Yeah. Right. But that wasn't the plan. Katie's waving her hand at me. So, okay. so God created all things, but he did not create sin. So therefore did. Satan sin and he is now can't, create, create. Kate can't create. kate Satan committed the first sin. It's not a creation. There you go. It's like a shadow. It's not, it's not a creation. Sin's not a creation. Sin's not a creation. So, what? <laughs> <laughs> you think it's a creation, Dave? No, I know. it's not a creation. It has to be something. It has to be something else. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and, and I, to me, my best understanding of it is, and the more I study it is, sin is a seeking of autonomy that God never designed for man to have, or that it never designed for, for the angels to have, discontentment. discontentment, closely rooted to pride and idolatry, okay? So now we have this sin problem, and we're running out of time, obviously. Let's think about... Because I, I want you to think, and, and this is good for us, even going into a VBS, because we can view VBS as just like, um, we got to get little kids saved. We got to get little kids saved. That's what we got to do. Well, yeah, we do, but that's not our job to get them saved. But, but what we need to do is we need to confront kids and their parents and everybody with this truth, that, that they're rebels, that they're sinners that they're that they're that they are willfully disobeying that they want to rule their own lives and that God wants to rule their life. Okay? All of a sudden the cute little whale pictures all of a sudden like are like, yeah, maybe it's too cute. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But but isn't Like a VBS, we can make this stuff look so cute and so cuddly. And here's the reality. We're dealing with a really, really dark issue called sin. We're dealing with a really dark issue. Real quick, I want to talk just to get us started under the consequences of the fall. There's personal consequences. All of a sudden, what God said would happen would happen for Adam and Eve, and now they have knowledge. And what do they know? They know they made a mistake, they know good and evil. They know good and evil. And because they know good and evil, there's certain things that happen that we all deal with and we all are trying to deal with it and the whole world is trying to deal with these two words, guilt and shame. Right? Because of sin there's guilt and there's shame. And how how are how are People who are apart from Christ, how are people who haven't been exposed to the truth of the gospel, how are they trying to deal with guilt and shame? They're trying to figure out a way to to, to pay the debt that they can't pay. They're trying to figure out a way to dull the pain that they have from their guilt and shame. They're trying to figure out a way to push it out of their life to make themselves not feel so bad. But understand this, at the moment that Eve sinned, that Adam sins, all of a sudden we have death introduced and we have the blame game introduced. Don't we? We have the blame game introduced. And who's blaming who? Adam says what? The woman you gave me. And who's Adam directly blaming for his sin? God. If you wouldn't have set this up this way, God, I would have passed the test. Who does Eve blame? She blames the serpent. And we live in a world of people who are doing everything they can, and we ourselves, even as believers, are prone to do it, to blame everybody and look everywhere but our own heart. And I hear people in the back of the room, which means we've got to stop. We're going to talk about the rest of this next week. Um, it's a terrible place to stop, but we have to do it. So, Casey, would you close us in prayer, please?